From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, journalist Jason Rezaian on the 544 days he spent in an Iranian prison. Iran and the United States have had an adversarial relationship for decades. But in the last few years, tensions have increased over Iran's nuclear ambitions. Iran does not need world powers to complete its nuclear program, he said. The crowds responded with the traditional cries of death to America, death to the UK and death to Israel. This has made reporting from Iran dangerous for Western journalists. But Jason Rezaian was undeterred. As an Iranian-American, he was fascinated with the idea of living and reporting from his father's ancestral homeland. In 2012, he became the Iran correspondent for The Washington Post. In his copy, Rezaian brought Iran to American readers. Until 2014, when he and his wife Yegi were suddenly arrested. Rezaian's crime seems to be that he was an American reporter and a good one. He is accused of espionage for, among other things, providing up-to-the-minute news from Iran and writing reports for the Washington Post that factions inside the Iranian government considered biased. Rezaian's brother Ali tirelessly advocated for Jason's release, traveling the world to present his case and lobbying in Washington. Celebrity chef Anthony Bourdain, who had interviewed Jason in Iran for Parts Unknown, his television show, also campaigned for his release. Our experience shooting in, in Iran had been a shockingly positive one. So this news came as a real slap to those hopes. Rezaian was set free after 544 days. He has written a memoir about his experiences called Prisoner. He's here with us now to share the story. Let's start at the beginning, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you come to Iran? I first went to Iran in 2001, My dad was born and raised in Iran, but moved to the United States in the late 1950s to go to college. He met my mom. She's American from the Midwest. They got married. They had my brother and I, raised us in in the San Francisco Bay Area. But, you know, as time went on and politics between the U.S. and Iran shifted, many members of his immediate and extended family relocated to the Bay Area. So we lived in this large, predominantly Iranian family. Um, And so that was a huge part of my growing up. And these people were very different than the Iranians that I saw on the news, you know, burning flags and chanting death to America, all that sort of stuff. So it was something that I was always fascinated in. And as as I grew up and went to college and became more and more interested in international affairs and and the possibility of going into journalism... I was also traveling quite a bit, as many young Americans were able to do for the first time in the late 1990s. You know, our dollar was strong and we were going many places. And my desire to see and know Iran just grew and grew. First out out of, you know, my own curiosities based on my, my origins, but also based on reading history of that country and about the civilization there. I just knew it would be a fascinating place. And when I was finally able to visit in 2001, realized, yeah, you know, this is an incredible place with an incredible story that's not very well told or understood. And how am I going to figure out how to help tell that story? So fast forward, you're exploring Iran. What were you working on? You know, I, I was writing a lot of cultural stories about people and um, trying to add nuance to the coverage of Iran, 
and I was freelancing for a lot of different organizations, including this one, including foreign policy. But in 2012, when I was offered the Washington Post job, it was, you know, a big opportunity, but also an open canvas. This is a country of 80 million people that's woefully misunderstood. No matter where you stand on the U.S. relations with Iran or the Islamic Republic or what it does to its people or what it does regionally, no one can make the argument that Iran is well understood in the West. And so I set out to try and uh, make sense of it for myself and in doing that make sense of it for American readers. A few days before July 22nd, 2014, your email's hacked. Yeah. Or there's a phishing scam. What yeah. happened? So I, I received uh, an email from what looked to be uh, the email address of a friend of mine, someone who I, I worked with from time to time in Iran. And I, you know, in retrospect, realized that I clicked on a link that I wasn't supposed to. And via that, um, the IRGC agency who... Explain what the IRGC is. The Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, who are the, you know, kind of maybe the main power in Iran right now, but, you know, a competing power center with the executive uh, branch, with Rouhani's government. You know, these are, are people who have their own beliefs and ideals, and their main mandate is to protect the system at all costs, mm-hmm. right? Um, and they're the ones that have been generally responsible for the arrest and detention of dual nationals, foreign nationals, hostages that have take, been taken and leveraged like me. Even at times of ostensible reform. and Oh, yeah. yeah. I would argue that um, they have ramped those up to diffuse or undercut any attempts. I don't know if reform is the right word, but of opening up to <laughs> the rest of the world. So, you know, they, they had accessed our emails and also our social media accounts. And so that was a day or so before uh, we were arrested. And... It was cause for concern, but I went to the authorities in Tehran who oversee press relations, who have a very close relationship with the Ministry of Intelligence, who are the traditionally the, the force that oversees journalists, who happen to be at great odds with the intelligence force that ended up arresting my wife and I. And I asked them, you know, very directly, I said, you know, this happened to us and we've seen a couple of other things that make us feel as though we've been followed around the city the last couple of days. Are we being investigated? Are we being trailed? Is there something that, you know, that we have done to um, raise the ire or skepticism of the authorities? And it may sound sort of naive on the surface, but, you know, after five years of dealing with this agency, on a near daily basis, there's a rapport that gets built up. And, you know, if there is a problem, they are the, the organization that would tell you, hey, you know, you can't work anymore. You crossed the line here. You're being suspended from uh, the ability to practice journalism. You should leave the country. We can't protect you. We can't guarantee your safety. You had been telling stories, um, and you mentioned culture, but also food. I've been telling all kinds of stories. I mean, I've been writing about food people, sports, politics, environmental crises, the situation of women. I was, I was doing my job as a journalist. 
And that agency came back to me and said, Jason, there's absolutely nothing wrong with what you're doing where nobody's investigating you for anything. Everything's fine. And literally, the day that we were arrested, we were given one-year extensions of our press credentials. Take us to July 22nd, 2014. What happened? Um, it was a strange day. I got a phone call from my wife. I was out um, reporting on a story. She and I were set to travel to the U.S. just a few days later. And we were going to come home for a couple of months. And I got a, a frantic call from her that, you know, I've, I've received this email. It was essentially a, a blackmail type email. Uh, rush home, please. You know, I don't know what's going on. I came home as fast as I could, got in touch with the uh, friend of ours who helps us with our IT needs. He came and said, you know, you've been hacked and let's change your passwords and let's set up, you know, a two-step verification so this doesn't happen again and all that. We did all of that. You know, I calmed down, tried to calm my wife down. Uh, we were getting ready to go to uh, surprise birthday party for my mother-in-law and we were leaving the building to get in a, a car that we had called to come and pick us up and when the elevator door we lived in a high-rise apartment building when the elevator door opened there were several men standing in front of the door one of them with a gun pointed at me they entered the elevator and um, took us back up to our apartment ransacked the place and took us to prison and that night, you t- you're taken to prison. How much longer are you with your wife? Um, we were together in the van ride over. We were blindfolded, and I was handcuffed. We weren't allowed to talk. Uh, we got to the prison, and then we were separated. We had a very brief encounter in an initial interrogation session that happened. I was blindfolded. She could obviously see me. She asked me what was going on, why were we there, when is this going to end? I tried to calm her, but imagine yourself in a room with people accusing you of being a CIA station chief, blindfolded, uh, your wife frantically asking you what's happening. And then she was whisked whisked away, and I I didn't see or hear anything from her for the next 35 days. Where were you taken? Solitary confinement. And how long were you there? I was in solitary for 49 days, and she was in prison for 72 nights and spent all of them in solitary. What was your cell like? It was tiny. It was, um, nobody's here with us, but much smaller than the studio that we're in right now. I could lie down in one direction and not the other. I think it was about four and a half by eight and a half feet. I had a tiny little hole in the ground as a toilet. It was also a nice breeding ground for roaches and other things and a very small sink. The ceilings were about 10 feet tall, and, and that was that was it. I mean, you know, there's no bed, there's no furniture. There's windows very high up on the wall, close to the ceiling with bars over them that I couldn't see out, but I could, you know, make out whether it was night or day. And a big steel door that would open a couple of times a day, slats in the bottom of it for food to come in, and a a little tiny window that guards could open and yell orders at you. Suffice it to say, I mean, solitary confinement is not designed to be um, nice. Were you interrogated during that time? Yeah. 
and you know as time went on you kind of look forward to interrogations because it becomes your only shot of human contact so it was probably you know the most personally trying period of my life but when you come out of solitary the mental scars of that don't go away i mean i'm still afraid of confined places um you know yeah, I mean, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. There's there's no justification for the use of long-term solitary confinement. I don't care what government's doing it. I'm vehemently opposed to the practice, and I think everybody should be. How did you keep yourself sane while you were there? I paced, you know, and there wasn't a lot of steps between one side of the uh, uh, the cell to the other. I spent a lot of time, you know, replaying episodes and periods in my life making plans you know thinking about all the things that I would try to um to make right in my life apologize for certain things that I felt guilty about I mean anything you just do anything but you know you don't want your mind to creep towards what if I never get out of here what are they doing to my wife Mm -hmm. will I ever see her again Will I ever see my mother again? You, you, you do whatever you can to stay away from those thoughts. And those thoughts are there with you all the time. I mean, they, they live with you. But you work hard to, to fill your mind with other stuff. When you were in interrogation, what were they accusing you of? In practice, they were accusing me of being a journalist. But, you know, in their terminology, they were accusing me of spying for the U.S., when did you first see your wife again? On the 35th day after an interrogation session, my lead interrogator told me, you're going to see your wife. And I, I didn't believe him. And, you know, very abruptly, they brought her into the room and she was blindfolded and she didn't know that she was coming to see me, obviously. Um, I think it was one of the, the best moments of my life, you know? same time one of the hardest and it only lasted a couple of minutes but the knowledge that you know she was still alive and in relatively um, good shape and so was I they didn't allow us to talk to each other did they let you touch (laughs) yeah yeah I mean initially no but you know my wife is pretty persistent and she came and gave me a big hug and you know made me um uh, show my profile, which was a shadow of <laughs> what it had been before, which I think she was both happy about and horrified by. <laughs> um, it was it was hard, but it, it, it in that situation, you're always looking for any reason to be hopeful. And in 35 days of being told that I was probably never going to see the outside again, that you know, it had been reported that I was dead, that nobody cared, that I may never see my wife again, that it was very highly likely that I'd be executed. You know, this was the first little piece of thing that I had to hope on. And um, and that was pretty great. When you get out of solitary <clears throat> confinement, you're taken to a cell with another prisoner. Yeah. What was that like? Awkward, confusing uh, at first but also ultimately very um, 
I don't think I can overstate how hard solitary confinement is. Um, so anything that gets you out of that is a huge step in the right direction. But what we couldn't grasp was why were we being let out of solitary and, um, and what it meant. Did it mean that we were being, you know, prepared for release? Or did it mean that we were being kind of put on ice and, you know, would be there for a very long time? It turned out it was the latter. Um, but we didn't know that at the time. And, uh, I will say, though, that, you know, in in that space, which was larger and had connected to it a confined concrete courtyard with high, high walls around it, but that we could access during daylight hours, it, it did wonders for me in, in that first few weeks out of solitary confinement because you are really psychologically battered. And I think having the opportunity to be with somebody else who was coming through the same experience for a similar amount of time, he had actually been in 10 days longer than I had. Um, looking back on it now, I, look, I think of that as, as kind of a gift. Did you have a common language? No. You? No. Uh, he was from the Republic of Azerbaijan. Um, didn't speak any Farsi, didn't speak any English. Um, but we had, uh, you know, common interests. We both uh, like food. We both had traveled extensively. And we both hated our captors with a passion. <laughs> so we, um, we bonded. And I think ultimately he and I spent about 13 months together. And by the end of it, we had developed our own common language of grunts and, you know, words taken from each other's native tongues that we strung together and used to communicate. Um, and we still communicate. He, um, he was freed a couple of months after I was. And, uh, you know, I, I think of this guy as, as my brother from another mother, my brother from another Azerbaijani mother. You go to trial. Yeah. And it is, it almost sounds like, cliche to say it, but it does seem like it's out of Kafka. Tell us about going to trial. It was like Kafka in more than one sense. One, that there's no answers and you're kind of faced with many instances where you just want to bang your head against the wall, which is, I think, something that most Kafka um, characters could relate to. But also in the sense that it's a kind of a play. You know, it's a piece of theater. Which you break character at some point when you're walking in. When you first walk in, you break character, don't you? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I see my, my mother and my wife are there. And, you know, I've been isolated for almost a year. And I'm being hauled into this courtroom for a, uh, what they're saying is a secret trial. I'm not really allowed any witnesses not 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 really. I am not allowed any witnesses, not allowed any evidence. Are you allowed an attorney? I'm allowed an attorney who I'm not allowed to talk to. <laughs> you know, I'm being brought through the back because if they bring me to the, the front, there's journalists out there. There's people I know out there. I've covered Iran for a long time. I know how this works. 
And so my mom and my wife are standing there beyond the security gates of the of the courthouse inside the building and they see me and I see them and so I you know I wave to them and tell them that I love them and my guards who are escorting me into the prison you know try and shut me up and I you know I just kept walking you know they weren't going to punch me you know they weren't going to kick me and at the same time I wanted to show my mom and my wife that you know I was standing up for us and I hope you agree there's some moments of defiance in the book and each one of those moments was fuel to get me to the next step. There's several moments when you're in interrogation where you stand up to your interrogators and in the courtroom. Pick one. Well, you know, with the interrogators, I'll say this. People want to know how I was treated physically. And I have no qualms saying that they never raised a finger against me physically. They said that they would. <laughs> you know, they they um, threatened all manner of violence against me, including, you know, death by beheading many times. But as I started to learn, they weren't going to hit me or they weren't going to electrocute me or they weren't going to hang me, you know, by my hands, wrists or something like this. I felt empowered to talk back. So that's all I want to say on that. In the courtroom, I think I, I stood up to the judge pretty regularly. Um, you challenged the translator. <laughs> yeah. Well, he made a mistake. You know, I gave an answer to a question. You know, Your Honor, I haven't done anything that other journalists don't do. I've been publicly sharing publicly available information. And the translator translated it as, I've been publicly sharing governmental information, which could be translated as sensitive information or classified information or, or any manner of things. And I, I correct him. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, my Farsi is not that good. But the word for public is not governmental. Those are two different words. And I honestly, in retrospect, don't think the guy did it on purpose. Mm-hmm. But – Here's the ultimate opportunity for me to poke a hole in this whole process. You know, you've you've given me a court-appointed translator who doesn't even know how to translate uh, one language to another. Okay, here's, you know, grounds for dismissal. You know, I mean, I'm thinking back to all of the law shows that I watched in the 1980s, you know. Uh, like, okay, well, objection, wow. Your Honor, you know. Yeah. Um, and every time I objected, the objection was dismissed. And, the, you know, the whole proceedings were filmed mm-hmm. and the Islamic Republic has videotapes of of my entire trial. And I just wanted to make sure that, you know, that if nothing else, that I didn't falter, that I didn't acknowledge doing anything wrong because I hadn't and that they didn't have anything to work with. One of the things they do also is basically tell you you've been forgotten. So you do start to learn that there is a public campaign for your release, including major celebrities like Muhammad Ali making a statement. Yeah. What did it mean to hear that? It meant everything. I mean, when you hear that a figure like Muhammad Ali, who is universally admired, respected, uh, and I think at this point in time loved – we in America see him as an American champion. They they see him as a, as an Islamic champion, right? He could, he's all things to all people. Well, this guy who's all things to all people 
is coming out very publicly uh, and saying, hey, Jason Resign didn't do anything wrong. What I know of Jason Resign is that he's a good reporter doing his job. I really wish Iran would let him go. I mean, one, it changed how my my guards looked at me. Two, I think it was one more nail in the coffin of the case against me. It's like, how are we going to square this thing? This guy's got so many people, so many organizations lining up calling for, for his release because it's obvious that he's done nothing wrong. And by the way, it's not like I, I'm a a person that, you know, that there's no digital record of, right? You know, just in the weeks before the arrest, obviously, we were on Anthony Bourdain's show. He was another incredible advocate for us. The footage of, of my wife and I on his show got played over and over and over again. I mean, they just, you know, I was foolish to think people might have forgotten about me in those early months because there were so many things, so many ways that people could call me up and raise my awareness around me uh, very easily on the internet. But given your lack of access to the internet, it must have been I had no idea. To, yeah. I mean, you know, you want to believe that people care, but it took some time for it to actually filter in that, that people actually were doing things. And even still, it, that it took a year and a half. Your brother does a huge amount for you. Yeah. Talk a little bit about where he went and what he did. He did everything. I mean, you know, he he was on planes. He lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. He came to Washington, D.C. 20 times that year. I mean, that's more often than members of Congress. Uh, he was also um, following the negotiating team around the world, you know, showing up in different places in Europe. Uh, and then there's a whole— You mean the negotiating team working on the Iran deal? On the Iran deal, right, to, you know— plant himself, plant a wedge. He wanted you to be a, a part of that. Yeah. And unbeknownst to all of us, starting in November 2014, there were secret negotiations going on in different cities from where the, the nuclear negotiations were taking place around me and other Americans being held. But, you know, he he was relentless. And in my conversations with the Washington Post and also with people in government, their attitude has been, you know, we've never seen an advocate like your big brother. Did you feel the Obama administration did enough? I think there's a lot of different opinions about this. I'll tell you an answer that I got very often. Um, the Obama administration gets a solid passing grade because you're here now. You know, they got you out. Mm-hmm. I knew you know, to the bottom of my soul that without the intervention of the president of the United States of America, whoever that person would have been at that time, had this dragged on many years or not, I wasn't getting out until the U.S. president decided I was getting out. I knew that. And I'm very thankful that it was made a priority to bring me home. In the scheme of Iranian hostage-taking, and results, unfortunately, Jason Rezaian is the happiest ending. When you get to Germany, which is your first destination outside of Iran, do you feel free? It took a little time. You know, you know, we were put in a military hospital at Landstuhl, 
where um, there are people who are experts in in uh, post-captivity care. We were told repeatedly that the... Um, and we is you and your wife at this point. Well, no, me and the pastor, Saeed Abedini, and Amir Hekmati, the, the Marine veteran, right. who were released with us. Um, no, I mean, when we landed in Germany, I was separated again from my wife and my mom. And I just, you know, I told the psychologists, like, guys, you know, I don't think this is super helpful right now. <laughs> I was deposited in a, in a um, hospital room where I spent a couple of nights, and they did some really basic exams on us and, you know, had some opportunities to talk with psychologists. It was a slow reintegration into freedom in Mm -hmm. those first few days. But little by little, you know, I negotiated my way into being able to stay with my family in the guest house on the base. Could you sleep? I needed help. Mm -hmm. You know, I needed pharmaceutical help. And um, and that lasted for a while, and I think that's pretty normal. I'm not a doctor, though. <laughs> to bring us to the present, you are testifying in a federal lawsuit against Iran. What's the lawsuit? My brother, my mother, and I have decided uh, decided in, in several months after we were released uh, to sue Iran for taking me hostage, which is an act of terrorism under U.S. law. Um, there are two components of this. You know, one is uh, to seek justice for what was done to us. Mm-hmm. And people forget, mm-hmm. right? And and they don't really think about this. But mm-hmm. I was put through uh, a very opaque, quasi legal process that was presented as a transparent judicial process in another country. During that process, I was the subject of a massive, coordinated propaganda campaign by that country's state media. Uh, I was denied not only due process, but the ability to represent my own views, both in the media and in court. At this moment in time, until a judgment comes in my U.S. case against Iran, the only official narrative is Iran's narrative. Mm -hmm. I'm not okay with that. We've got this book, and it's a piece of journalism or literature, it's also not an official document. It's my account, uh, but a, a, a U.S. court. Um, so more than remuneration, you want an official account? Yeah, I, I want that. You know, the, the compensation for what happened to us, even if there's a massive judgment, we may never be able to collect on it. It's not like Iran starts cutting checks to their victims. It's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I have a right to seek justice. And I'm surprised that some people privately and publicly have questioned my... Have they? Yeah. People are saying, you know, you're going to steal money from the coffers of the Iranian people. Well, not actually. You know, go back and look where where any compensation in a judgment would come from. And it's not from the people of Iran. And it's not from the taxpayers of America either. It's from a fund. You know, they've done damage to me that... If I get to the point where I'm a whole person ever again, I'd be very happy. But I'm never going to be the same person I was before this happened to me. And the impact that it continues to have, especially on my wife and I, but also on my brother and my mom and our extended relations, nobody should have to go through this. You know, I, I think more than anything, 
the justice for us is one really important component. But to compel and deter them from doing this again. There are journalists still in jail now. They're not only journalists. There's Americans in jail in Iran. There's British people in jail. There's Canadians. And they keep doing this. And until there's a reason for them not to do it, I would argue that they're going to keep doing it. And, you know, within two weeks of my release, they were arresting new Americans and have continued to do so ever since. Jason, I feel like we could speak for hours. It'd be my pleasure. But we probably should stop. It is always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Jason Resign's new memoir is titled Prisoner. It's out now. First Person is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I'm your host.